and said, learn everything. And they, then they gave us a piece of paper and said, you're graduating. But we had a good time, but uh, we didn't get a chance to have Dr. Rayleigh. But um, he taught at the seminary. We're so blessed to have him share, not only this morning, but like I said, Wednesday night as we kick off Grow University. Tremendously knowledgeable about the Word of God, his passion to teach it, but specifically his expertise is in the New Testament. So why another reason we brought him and Linda here today. Would you help me welcome Dr. Jim Rayleigh to Oak Grove? Come on, give him an Oak Grove welcome. And we're gonna we're gonna have a good time tonight and also Wednesday. Don't forget, don't forget to come back tonight at six o'clock as well. I bless you, Pastor Rayleigh. We love you and thank you for sharing this day with us. It was obviously my loss that I didn't have them in class. It's, it's totally my loss. Thank you for the opportunity of sharing with you this morning. We'll talk about the uh, triumphal entry. Now, it could be called that or it could be called Palm Sunday. You know, your, your children have already reminded us of Palm Sunday with the palm fronds branches just a few moments ago. And that's very important for us to keep in mind. The reason that we would call this Palm Sunday is that one of the gospel narratives about this event does mention the palm branches. John, the Gospel of John does. Now, the other gospels don't mention it, which does not mean it wasn't there. It just means they didn't mention it. Okay, But uh, very clearly, that's one of the reasons. I would prefer this morning... And you can see why. I, I, I would like to call this the triumphal entry. It, it is Palm Sunday, but there's something about calling it triumphal entry that's very important. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem now, acknowledged by the crowds as the king, the one who's bringing the kingdom, okay, the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. The one who can be called the son of David. Now, these are important things that we'll talk more about as we get into this story a little bit more deeply. In that world, a triumphal entry was fairly common for a conqueror, for a military general, or or some other important figure who had won a victory. That is, triumphal entries are not simply moments when someone who's not known, not recognized, shows up on the scene and is suddenly uh, an important figure. Rather, it's, it's when somebody who is a conqueror is acknowledged. Now, we know that the real conquest is going to take place toward the end of this week. When he dies for our sins and is resurrected by power on Easter Sunday. Okay, so, so we, we know the rest of the story. We've, we've already been there in our minds, and, and we have it figured out. But the reality is, on this Sunday, he is the conquering king. You know, the, the mission is on its way to being recognized and realized publicly. But the mission has already accomplished its purposes. He has been among people now for three years. He has taught. He has performed the miraculous. The kingdom has come. That was his message to begin with. The kingdom is at hand. So the triumphal entry then is a recognition of the conqueror coming to the place, to the city. And that's what he will do. 
Notice also, he will come into the city, recognized and acknowledged, and will then go to the temple. Now, we'll probably pick up on Wednesday night a little bit more about his ministry in the temple. We'll say some things about it this morning, but we'll get more into it on, on Wednesday evening. But, but once again, that's, that's the, the pattern. That's what the conqueror does. He comes into the city, and if there's a temple, he goes there. Now, Jesus is going to do something unique in the temple. When he goes there, he's going to cleanse it because it was not being used properly. But that's, that's another story, okay? So the triumphal entry. This, this story that's our focus this morning is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, there are other accounts of Jesus' life in all four Gospels, but there are not that many. It's kind of a unique thing that all four Gospels will record this story. Now, I want to take a little bit of time this morning to read in your hearing all of the accounts. And I, I know there are going to be some duplications as we look at them, and you'll say, well, we've already heard that. But, but listen with me as we look at the way the gospel writers tell us this story. The first, Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them. Bring them to me. Now, this is interesting. If anyone says anything to you, say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet, Zechariah 9. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their coats on them for Jesus to sit on. Very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now that's Matthew's account. Mark, in chapter 11, tells us the same story very similarly. Mark 11, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage in Bethany on uh, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent Two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're doing this, say the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their coats over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches they'd cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom 
of our father David. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, looked around at everything. But since he was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now that's Mark's account. Listen with me one more time. This time to Luke's account in chapter 19, Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there. No one's ever ridden. Untie it. Bring it here. Anyone asks, then say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead, those who were sent ahead, went and found it just as Jesus told them. As they were untying the coat, as owners asked, why are you untying the coat? They replied, the Lord needs it. Brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks uh, on the coat, put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting phrase. It's in Luke. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, in your mind, do a a reverse, okay? Hit the rewind real quickly. Where have you heard that kind of a phrase before in Luke's gospel? Aha. At the angelic announcement of the birth of Jesus. Okay, angel said the same thing. Kind of interesting that Luke would now pick it up as being said by the crowd. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Then John has his account. John 12, picking up at verse 12. Now, John does this a little differently, so listen and and catch it with me. Next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it as it's written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they understand these things had been written about him, and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone out after him. Okay, now we've heard the four presentations from the Gospels. What I'll try to do in the next few moments is is put those together. You noticed in the reading a lot of common things. They they tell us a lot of the same things. They tell us a few different things. There are emphases that one will make and the other won't. Okay, now for our time's sake, we probably will not be able to get into all the little differences and, and parse them out. So let's kind of look at the main line. Before we do that, I need to remind you that this event has multiple Old Testament images flowing into it. 
And, and we don't always notice that. You know, the, the Zechariah quote that was mentioned about the daughter riding on the donkey, that kind of, you know, that, that's kind of, kind of obvious. But there's some other Old Testament lines that kind of flow into here. Beginning, for instance, with Genesis 49. Now, in Genesis 49, Jacob is coming to the end of his life. He's called the boys in, and he's pronouncing blessings over them. Now, as you read those blessings in 49 of Genesis, some of them are kind of straightforward. Watch out, guy. <laughs> you know. But with Judah, with Judah, it's kind of interesting. So at 49, verse 10, Jacob says about Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. Now, here's, here's the phrase that kind of links us somewhat to the story we're reading this morning from the Gospels. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. And then Jacob goes on. So, so here, way back in Genesis, in a prophecy blessing Jacob makes to Judah, indicating Judah's lineage will produce this ultimate one who will come. And all nations will obey him. And then he ties it into a donkey. Okay. Another Old Testament image that may be flowing in here is in 1 Kings chapter 1. In 1 Kings chapter 1. Now, to remind you quickly of where we are now. David is the king, and he's nearing the end of his life. He's endured the revolution from his son Absalom, and that has been put down. He's returned to, to Jerusalem. He's reigning as the king. But now in 1 Kings 1, David is nearing his death, which prompts another of his sons, Adonijah, to decide he wants to be king. And so Adonijah gets together a number of people, including some of David's followers some of David's officials, and goes out to proclaim himself to be the king. Now, the word comes through Nathan the prophet in Bathsheba, David's wife, Solomon's mother, that this is going on, and they don't think David knows about it. Now, what they know is that David has already promised that Solomon's going to be the king. So they come to tell David about it. David says, whoa, we've got to do something. So here's what he does. He, he calls together Nathan, prophet, Zadok priest, Benaiah, general of the armies, and says to them, take Solomon, now this is interesting, and put him on my mule, and take him down to Gion, and anoint him there as the king, and then bring him back and put him on my throne. Interesting, it's a mule in that family of animals, kin to the donkey that is going to be the one on which Solomon will ride, and, and, and that will be a clear sign he's, he's been appointed king by his father David. Another Old Testament image that may be flowing through and getting, come, coming to here is in 2 Kings 9. In 2 Kings 9. Now, this is the story about the kingship in Israel. Now, if you remember, the, the, the nation has been divided into two Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The kings in Israel in the north have not been good kings. 
one of the worst they had was Ahab. Now, Ahab is gone, but his son Joram is the king in Israel. Prophet Elisha sends a messenger to anoint a young man named Jehu to be king. Now, Jehu, as you know from the story, will go out and destroy the family of Ahab and and establish some degree of righteousness in the northern kingdom until Jehu himself kind of gets off the rail. But, But here, when the word gets out that Jehu has been anointed king by this emissary from, from the prophet Elisha, Jehu's people take their coats off and put them down before him, recognizing his status now as the king, and Jehu walks out and then begins his ministry. Another Old Testament image that kind of flows into this story of the triumphal entry is from Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Now, Psalms 113 to 118 are considered Hallel Psalms, Psalms of praise. And they were often used in in Israel's worship, especially on major festival days. And so there have no doubt been people singing some of these Psalms on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival that is in in the back of the, the, the mind here, okay? So in, in 118, at verses 25 and 26, the psalmist says, Lord, save us. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. So once again, you can, you can see that imagery and those that verbiage has, has flown in, uh, has moved into the story that we're looking at this morning. Then one last Old Testament image that you're, you've already heard about, Zechariah 9. The prophet there says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those, those Old Testament specific passages now kind of flow into the uh, story of the triumphal entry. But there's one other element we need to pick up from the Old Testament that has importance here. And that's the general imagery and, and, and truth of the Passover celebration. Now, you remember, when they are delivered from Egypt, a part of that deliverance is God setting out for Israel a, a, a way to remember this. It's called the Passover. They're together in their homes. They eat the lamb that has been cooked for that particular time. They take blood and place it over the lentils of their door, over the, over the doorpost, you know, to make sure that when the death angel passes through Egypt, killing all the firstborn, their houses will escape. And they were called upon to do this every year. As you read the Old Testament, you'll remember they didn't always do this as regularly as they were supposed to. There'd be these moments when they would revive it and start it over. But by the time we come to the New Testament, it has become a major major festival. In fact, from the Old Testament, there were three times a year every Jewish male was to go to the presence of the Lord. In this particular case, now Jerusalem. Passover was one of them. It's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread. The second was the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, or Pentecost. That'll become important in Acts chapter 2. As you know, okay. And the third time was the feast of ingathering. 
known also as the Feast of Booths. So three times a year, every Jewish male is supposed to come to Jerusalem now to the presence of the Lord, which means now on this occasion that we're talking about the triumphal entry, there will be pilgrims on the roads coming into Jerusalem. In fact, it's estimated that Jerusalem's population would probably have doubled, maybe tripled, with the guests who would come for this festival. So when Jesus comes to the town now, he comes along with these groups of others who are coming to worship. Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem for this event a long time. In fact, if you go all the way back to Luke 9, at verses 51 and following, Luke tells us that Jesus set his mind to go to Jerusalem, knowing that his time was near. So from Luke 9 forward, as it were, he's been on his way to this moment. So, so, so keep in mind, when, when, when we get to what we're talking about this morning, it's not an accident. It's not a, a, an incidental detail. It's a part of what God has been doing through his son Jesus all these years. He's been working toward it. Now, he's ministered. Jesus has ministered in Galilee. He's ministered some in Samaria, some in Judea, so all, all up and down the countryside. But now when we get serious about him coming for this moment, he would have probably come down towards Samaria and then crossed over the Jordan, crossed over the Jordan because Jews don't like to go through Samaria. And Samaritans don't like for Jews to come through Samaria either for that matter. So he's probably crossed over. My map is horrible. I apologize. It needs to be seven times as large, and I tried to make it larger, and it just didn't work. You know, anyway, there. So it would have crossed over and come down on the eastern side of the, of the river, and then come back across. Now, as the gospel writer set it up, on his way to Jerusalem, he will go through Jericho. Now, Jericho is a city to the northeast of Jerusalem. In that city, he, Jesus, will meet a blind man. One gospel writer tells us two blind people. They will call him son of David. He'll heal them of their blindness. And also in Jericho on this trip, he will run into a guy named Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus, uh, the tax collector who's climbed up into the tree to see him. Remember the story that we used to sing about in children's church? No, I won't sing it. You can relax. Okay, please. <laughs> we, won't, we, won't in, we won't embarrass myself and, and, and tr- trouble your ears. In, anyway. So, so that's what he's done. Now, as we get to the uh, closer to where we are now, he comes to Bethany and Bethphage. Uh, these are two little, two little villages on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Okay. Uh, comes, he comes to these cities on his way in. Now, the Mount of Olives is kind of important for our story and for this particular account. The Mount of Olives is a, a mountain, is, is part of a mountain range about two miles long to the east of Jerusalem. Now, it's not that far from Jerusalem. It's uh, a mile and a half, two miles roughly. And the Mount of Olives was the highest peak on that little range of hills, okay? Now, it's variously measured as maybe 2,700 feet, 3,000 feet in elevation. So it's, it's, not, it's not a huge mountain. But it did somewhat tower over Jerusalem so that from the Mount of Olives you could see into the city 
And then from the city, you, you look back and saw it. So he's, he's, coming, he's coming over the mount toward the city of Jerusalem. And these two little cities are on the eastern side of, of that mount. Okay, that brings us now closer to, to the uh, events involved on this particular occasion, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. Now, we did not read it in any of the texts we looked at this morning. But I do need to go back in your mind to the story of the raising of Lazarus. Because it's going to be very important for what happens when he gets toward Jerusalem. The story of the raising of Lazarus is in John 11. Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, lived in Bethany. And they were obviously good friends of Jesus. Lazarus takes sick and dies. And Jesus is not there when he dies. He arrives afterward. And as you remember, the sisters of Lazarus have a little trouble with Jesus not having been there on time, although Jesus was on time. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, as you look at the story in John 11, it's a miracle. It's an astounding miracle. No question. No question. Because he not just died, he'd been in the grave. Right? And he comes forth from that grave a lot. Raising a lot of interest and curiosity in people. You see, Lazarus was evidently a well-known figure. So that even during his illness and then his death, people from Jerusalem had gone. And been a part of the, the waiting period and, and then the burial. And then they're there when Jesus raises from the dead. So, so it, it stirs up a lot of interest in Jesus and who he might be. It causes the Pharisees and the elders of the Sanhedrin to purpose in their hearts to not only kill Jesus, but kill Lazarus. Okay? Now, we don't know. John doesn't tell us how long it is between the raising of Lazarus and the events of the triumphal entry. But do keep in mind, the crowds who were amazed at what he did in regard to raising Lazarus are a part of this story, a big part of this story. There were probably many of them who come with him from Bethany toward Jerusalem and others who will be in Jerusalem and come come out from the city, as we'll see momentarily. Okay. As they began to come then toward Jerusalem, Jesus sends two disciples to Bethphage to secure the donkey on which he will ride. And notice, they were to simply say, the Lord needs them. And they'd be allowed to get them, which was the case. Now, I got to be honest with you. I got to be real honest with you. You know, if, if you came up to me and said, the Lord needs your car, give me the keys, <laughs> the, the, the chances are I'm going to say to you, uh, <clears throat> which Lord? Let's, let's talk about this for a few moments. Okay, I want to, I want to get this very clear in my mind. All right. But do remember, the society in Jesus' day was far more hospitable towards strangers and their requests than we are. You know, we're we're quite private 
we like what we own. We like our stuff. And sharing it is not always easy, especially with people we don't know. So that's one factor. Keep in mind, too, this is a pilgrimage of people from all over the country, many of whom will be coming through Bethany, Bethphage, on their way to Jerusalem. So, so there's always some, some, some sort of disposition. But, but then don't forget, the crucial factor is Jesus telling the two disciples, you say the Lord needs it. I want to put that on my list of things to ask when I get to heaven. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of fellow who I've got this long list I'm going to ask. Truth of the matter is, I suspect when I see the brilliance of my Lord, I'm not going to ask a thing. Okay, I'm going to forget all my questions. But, but I really wonder, why is it that his simply saying, tell him the Lord needs it, is going to cause the owner to allow the usage of these animals? It could be that Jesus knew the owner of the animals ahead of time. He's been to Bethany and Bethphage. This is not his first trip through here. So it could be he knew them. And in some way, they had become followers of his. And so the, the, the name, the Lord, the title, the Lord, would have resonated with them. And they would have immediately given. That's, that's entirely possible. That's entirely possible. Okay? At any rate, they get the animals and bring them to Jesus. Now notice, the gospel writers are also clear. This has to be an animal that has never been ridden. Never been, that is, it's never been used for anything else. That is, the sacredness of the task of this animal to bear Jesus into Jerusalem is so important and so very crucial that this animal cannot have been used for anything else. Now, it may be later. I don't know. We don't know what happens to the animals after this event. But to this point, this animal has never been ridden, never been used in any kind of service other than what's going to happen here. The sacredness of the task was such that it's never been ridden before, never been used in any other way. Okay. Notice also, and the gospel writers are again clear, that what's happening now, the securing of these animals, this animal, these animals for Jesus to ride on, fulfills a prophecy. Zechariah 9. We've read it. We remember it, okay? But notice, Zechariah is clear that the riding of this animal is going to be indicative that the king is coming. You know, very much like when David said, put Solomon on my mule. You know, it was, it was the indication that Solomon was to be the king. So Zechariah has said the, the, the use of this animal is going to be very clear. It indicates that the king is here. Oh, daughter Jerusalem, daughter Israel, know this, the king, he's riding on this animal. But it's a gentle animal, a donkey. Not, not the stallion, okay, not, not the war horse. A donkey, a gentle, pointing, I think, to the reality of the king and the reality of the king's kingdom. Now, you know, of course, that the anticipation of many of the Jewish people 
at this time is that the Messiah will be a warrior. And he'll overthrow the Romans. And he will restore civil government to Jerusalem itself, to Israel itself, driving out all the foreigners. That's not the kingdom that Jesus brought. And this animal indicates that, among other things. But this animal indicates that. Okay, his, this king and this kingdom totally different. And, and John is clear. Jesus' disciples don't understand this either. Okay, it's not until after the passion that they do. Okay, they bring the, the animal to Jesus. And they place their clothes on the animal to provide something of a saddle for Jesus. There's something of a barrier between him and the animal. Okay? But then others, including them, perhaps the disciples themselves too, begin to place clothing and branches they've cut from the field on the way, on the path in front of the animal. No doubt an act of worship. No, no question about that. But also notice it provides better footing for the animal. Notice he's, if, if, if I had a good picture and I don't have one, they're coming down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. The slope is not that severe, but it is a slope. So not only do this clothing and the branches provide worship, and they do that, absolutely so, but they provide a little security for the animal and for Jesus who's riding it. Now let's think about the worship of the crowds. And you do have to say crowds. There, there are two major crowds in this story. There's the crowd with Jesus and the crowd that comes out of Jerusalem to meet him. Okay? Now, those who come out of Jerusalem to meet him, John has told us, have some contact with the Lazarus story. And they have been wondering, is Jesus coming? So now when the word begins to spread that he's on his way, crowds come out of the city. And those crowds are waving the palm branches. Okay? Uh, the palm branches would have had a function in the Passover celebrations. They typically mean success and victory. And, and remember, that's what the Passover celebration is all about. God's victory over Egypt. God's success in bringing his people out and establishing them as a nation. So the palm branches are very important, and now they bring them and, and wave them, as it were, toward Jesus as they, as they come from the city to greet him, indicating once again the success of Jesus' ministry. Those who come out and those who are with him are also involved in some verbalizations of worship. They say, for instance, Hosanna which in some ways is a prayer for salvation and a praise for salvation. So, so in, in a meaningful way now, they're saying, Hosanna, salvation is here. Hosanna, what we have waited for has arrived. They also ascribe to him the name Son of David, a very important recognition of the Messiah. He is to be David's descendant, David who's from the tribe of Judah, all the way back to Genesis 49. Okay. David's descendant, son of David is coming, okay, the one whom God has sent to redeem us. He's the one who, the worship says, comes in the name of the Lord. 
Okay, he comes bearing the name, the presence of the Lord in their midst. He's the king of Israel, they describe him. The king of Israel. He's indeed the, the one who is bringing the coming kingdom of our father David. And then from Luke, as we noted, they, 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 they cry peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Oh, I can only imagine the tumultuous joy that's flooding through these crowds as they follow Jesus and as they come out to meet him and begin to ascribe to him the real recognition he deserves. He is the son of David. He is the one who's bringing the coming kingdom of David. Okay? He is the one who's bringing peace. Okay? Well, as you can imagine, and we heard it, the Pharisees and the other leadership of the Jews don't like this a whole lot. And they ask Jesus to tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If I do, even the stones will cry out. Now he gets to Jerusalem. Okay? And Luke tells us something striking. Now remember, it is Luke who has said, the crowds are saying, peace in heaven. Glory to God in the highest. Among the other things. Okay? But now Luke records Jesus as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city weeping over it. Now remember, we're setting this up as a triumphal entry. This, this is the king coming. This is the Messiah arriving. This is the one they've longed for and needed. And yet Jesus says, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He recognizes that the, the crowds who are now thunderously applauding him and worshiping him. Crowds will later in this week say, crucify him. Crucify him. And so now Jesus looks with, with I think, sorrow. He says, if you'd only known, but instead you've, you've not. So the day is coming. When your enemies will build embankments against you, encircle you, hem you in on every side, dash you to the ground, your children within your walls. In other words, Jesus clearly notes that their rejection of him here is going to mean their judgment. Let me take you one step further, and then we'll need to stop for this morning. We're also told he goes next to the temple. Now, he will cleanse the temple, but I'd like to wait till Wednesday night to talk about that, okay? Because there's another ministry taking place in the temple when Jesus gets there that we cannot miss. Now, remember, the crowds are, are, are spreading the news. Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, is in town. Jesus, the one who, who has raised Lazarus from the dead, is in town. And so people began to come to the temple. We're told the blind and the lame, and he heals them. And he heals them. Okay? So what, what the, the, the king has arrived, and his ministry is providing that wonderful touch of healing to the people. Well, once again, the uh, leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders aren't too happy about it. 
Because even the children, we're told, start shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. It's at this point Jesus says, hey guys, don't you know Psalm 8 tells us that God ordains praise from the lips of children and infants? After his ministry there in the temple, he and the disciples return to Bethany where they'll stay. Now, if you'll allow me, I have a three-point sermon. No, it's not going to take 30 more minutes. You can relax, okay? Point one. We worship the king. We worship the king who has come and is coming. You know, we're, we're not standing with those who will later in this week say crucify him. We're standing with those on the roadside and coming out of the city saying, the king, the Messiah, the son of David is here. You know, we choose to see him. We choose to recognize him. We choose to worship the king who has come and is coming. And we choose, number two, to accept the kingdom which the king has brought and is bringing. You know, we're, we're today sitting here because we have chosen to say yes to him. We've said yes to the king. Yes, we want to be a part of your kingdom. Recognizing that kingdom is then deeply embedded within us and being spread in throughout our world by our testimony and our witness to others. And that kingdom is yet fully to come. And then thirdly, we're challenged this morning to live out the ethos of the king and his kingdom, which is represented in this text by the donkey, not the conquering horse. As we become a kingdom of of people who love their world, who reach out to their world in compassion and understanding, we're not necessarily the people of a kingdom and a king who are involved in trying to start a riot or start a revolution. You know, we want to present a gospel of peace that changes people's lives, works deeply within their hearts, and makes them members of this kingdom with us. But I do need to remind you, as you know, he comes on triumphal entry riding a donkey, gentle, peaceful. But John... And Revelation 19 reminds us he's coming again on a conquering horse as king of kings and lord of lords, bringing to an end all the rebellion against him and all the rebellion against his kingdom and entering into this world, his kingdom. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Dr. Rayleigh. I'll tell you what, I knew uh, Dr. Rayleigh Oak Grove loves the Word of God. And I knew that they would salivate at the opportunity to to hear from a New Testament scholar about some of the details concerning the triumphal entry. And uh, as you read, I'm going to, my attempt this week is to read the New Testament in its entirety, two and a half hours a day, each day this week. And uh, you can do uh, Matthew uh, and Mark on Monday. Read it out loud or listen to it. 
listen to it on CD or any way you can. I got a cramp in my side. Devil, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Just old age. Don't bother with it. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Monday. Luke and John, Tuesday. Wednesday, we'll come back, uh, with, uh, Dr. Rayleigh. But um, uh, Acts and Romans, Wednesday. And First and Second Corinthians, Thursday. And then finish out the rest of the New Testament on Friday. So that before you get here on Friday night, you will have read or listened to or heard out loud the entire New Testament. How many know it's possible? It is, whether you believe it or not, it is. My friend back home in my home church are reading it out loud, not inside the church, Dr. Rayleigh, but on the courts, uh, the steps of the court in my hometown and the surrounding area. Every parish is going to be reading out loud. Uh, four hours it takes uh, for somebody to read it out loud, I guess, or two and a half hours. But, um, but they're going to read it, and the whole Tri-City Parish in Louisiana is going to hear the Word of God. The entire New Testament is going to be read out loud. How many know it's time to get the Word of God, like Ezra, get the Word of God read in the, in the house of God and especially in the world? So thank you, Dr. Rayleigh. Thank you for reading that text and all four Gospels. But I want tonight, uh, today, this morning, to do something specific. I want our prayer partners to come. So would you stand with us? Would everyone stand this morning as we dismiss three powerful, powerful questions or actually statements that Dr. Rayleigh made at the end? The king is, has come and is coming. The kingdom has come and is coming. Talking about the messianic kingdom, the millennial reign, which after, after the Lord finishes this thing out, we're going to have a thousand-year reign and peace on earth with the Lord our God. Jerusalem and the people of God there missed it. They were expecting the militant leader and Messiah to come as David, a warrior. And uh, they didn't quite get it. They were wanting to set up kingdom now. One of the reasons Judas betrayed the Lord, because he was disappointed in Jesus. He really wanted Jesus to come and straighten everybody out. So here's the million-dollar question. Do you want to serve Jesus on your terms, or do you want to serve Jesus on his terms? And he came out and laid it down. And uh, what a wonderful presentation, Pastor. Thank you. Would you help me appreciate Dr. Rayleigh this morning? Thank you, Linda. For coming and sharing. We're looking forward, looking forward to Wednesday night. But the gentle Savior came, came riding on a humble colt. He came to heal in the tabernacle, in the temple. And if you're here today, you need healing, salvation, prayer of any reason. Uh, if you want to come, I mean, oh, the king of the glory is in this house today. I said the king is here this morning. So if you have a need, we invite you to come. We're going to worship the Lord for just a few minutes. If you don't have a need, just lift your hand.